Hello and welcome everyone to the Monday Morning General Podcast, where we give you the play-by-play analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, and that's Bjorn, and this is part two of the Battle of Hastings. So Bjorn, last time we talked all about the events that led up to Hastings. Can you just give us a quick recap of what we talked about last time? Yeah, so this is this is one of those where you could easily get lost in kind of the politics of the game. So we had we had this English king, an Anglo-Saxon king who dies, and he has no apparent heir. So the question is, who's going to take over this Anglo-Saxon kingdom of England? And we've got a couple of people playing in this game now. Remember last week we talked about... Uh, there were about five or six different people who had a claim, but only three of them are really going to exercise that claim. So first we've got William, the Duke of Normandy. And you remember him, his original nickname was William the Bastard, who came from Normandy in what is now northern France. And he was claiming that he had the title or he was the heir to the throne based off of what the previous king had promised him. Like Many years Brendan, before. When I... Yeah, when I die, Brendan, I want you to be king. That's essentially the claim that William has. And then you have another individual whose name is Harold Godwinson, and he's the individual who was basically chosen to be king by the Anglo-Saxons themselves. It was a council of nobles and bishops. After the death of the king, King Edward the Confessor, he was chosen by the people. So, you know, it's almost like a constitutional monarchy style of we've got this, this, we've, we've elected our king. So he's going to basically be the guy with the English army playing for this throne. And he is the one that is crowned king of England. So he is holding, he's trying to hold on to his kingdom. Exactly. So we've got William, who's the Norman. He's going to have a Norman army moving to invade England based off of a claim that the, the previous king had promised it. And then you've got Harold Godwinson, who's got an English army. He was chosen by the English to be their king. And then you have a third individual whose name is Harold Hardrada. And Harold is a Scandinavian Viking king who's coming in claiming that he had a previous king who he was related to and thus was the rightful heir to the throne. So we've got these three individuals vying for the throne of England. They all have armies. As soon as Edward the Confessor dies, these three individuals begin initiating movement to uh, try and take over the throne, try and grasp England. Yeah. And they raise their armies, they get ready for an invasion. Harold Godwinson, the English king, knows that these individuals are jostling for this position. And so Harold is going to initiate movement immediately as well. He's going to go north, he's going to try and solidify his holdings up there. And then we're going to see as these other two armies are moving to invade. Now, one of them is going to move first due to the fact that. There was some really, really heavy uh, storms in the English Channel preventing William, the Duke of Normandy, from invading originally. Uh, We're going to see Harold Hardrada, the Scandinavian Viking, we're going to see him invade first. And so, Brendan, how does that that move happen? Yeah, so Harold Godwinson, King of England, is currently in the southern part of England, and he's sitting there all summer waiting for William to invade, and it never happens. Uh, Harold Hardrada lands his fleet, and they land at, um, I think, York. And then they move up the river trying to go into Northumbria. And so Harold learns of this. Harold Godwinson learns of this. And he immediately just starts booking north, like moves super fast north. So it's like 200 miles from where he initially was. He gets up to London. And so it's another 185 miles from London to Yorkshire where he's going to go and meet the Viking army in battle. 
uh, to defend his claim to the throne. So that's 185 miles from London to Yorkshire, and he does that march in four days and picking up an army along the way. So that's like that's, al- like almost 50 miles a day marching. That is so ridiculous. You know, imagine these individuals, the fastest thing that they have is their horses, and the horses are only going to be owned and possessed by the house carls right. and the thanes who are the individuals like the the elders, the leaders, the professional army. And this entire time, as the King of England, Harold Godwinson, is moving to the Viking army, he's picking up his feared. The feared is basically the peasants, the, yeah. the civilians who who have some obligation to protect their homeland. But they that are not professional soldiers. Move. They are farmers, most you know, mostly farmers, or maybe a blacksmith or a merchant guy. But they are you know laborers, and they don't have like great weapons. Uh, and it's important to note here too. Harold Godwinson disbands his initial feard that is in the southern part of England and moves north without an army, basically. You know, he has his house carls and his thanes with him, but he has no, like, no common soldier. And so he picks them up on the way. Well, think of it. If he were to have attempted to move his entire, he would have moved know, fast quote, peasant army, that would have taken so long. Yeah. None of those individuals were in any condition to move at that breakneck speed. And so this is potentially a good move on the part of Harold Godwinson that he's going to disband the feard He's going to take only his elite trained soldiers, only the individuals, the high lords, the chieftains, and their their retainers, and he's moving fast. Yeah, and he could, he takes the Vikings completely off guard here. They have no idea he's coming, and so, uh, yeah, he moves there in four days, so the Vikings don't really have time to prepare any sort of defense to, you know, to you know, have the English lay siege. So it's going to, he's he, going to meet them in open combat. And the Viking force, essentially, they're, since they're caught on, unaware we're going to see this battle take place with them in almost no no preparation whatsoever. Right. Is that isn't that correct? That's correct. Yeah. All right. So Bjorn, let's talk about this first battle of the episode, the Battle of Stamford's Bridge between the Norwegian army and King Harold Godwinson's English army. So I want to talk about the location and the terrain of the battlefield. So this is going to be another one, you know, old battle from a long time ago. We don't necessarily have all the information. The sources aren't great, uh, but we think that this battle took place somewhere east of York, most likely on the River Derwent. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle does mention the Stamford Bridge uh, in multiple occasions, but there has never been any archaeological dig to uncover where this wooden bridge is. So we don't know exactly where on the River Derwent that the Battle of Stamford Bridge took place. Uh, the terrain around the area, rolling hills, some wooded areas, some farmland. Uh, the River Derwent uh, itself is wide and shallow, uh, so it was fordable in several places. And it was a really important transportation route, especially moving into the town of York. So this battle is going to basically take place with the English on the uh, west side of the river, the Norwegians on the east side of the river, river in the middle, and then a bridge. Let's talk about the composition and disposition of each force. And let's talk about the English army first. So on the way up to Stamford's Bridge, Harold Godwinson is able to pick up like ten to 15,000 footmen in a mixture of housecarls, thanes, and furred. And he has got about around 2,000 uh, cavalry. That's a that's a pretty decent sized force. It is when you're talking about having completely disbanded, relocated 185 miles, and within four days you're able to assemble an army of that size. Now, talking about these individuals, the House Carls, they're the professional soldiers. They're basically hired by Harold Godwinson and his army. They're the elite yeah, forces, like, a, like that, a royal guard kind of thing. Yeah, that's yeah. what they do. Their job is to be professional soldiers. So you can and expect... And they're professionally equipped too, right? So they had chainmail, exactly. ar- scale armor, helmets. Right. Helmets were super expensive. So not many people had helmets. So they had uh, metal helmets. They had their small kite-shaped shields. 
and they some of them carried the you know the big two-handed Dane axe, uh, but they also had a mix of swords and javelins too. So these guys were professionally equipped soldiers, and this is all they did. And that they're going to be the core of Harold's army, and essentially during one of these battles in the you know the the in quotes Dark Ages, the Middle Ages areas, the elite soldiers are the ones who are going to be leading the charge. They're going to be holding the line. They're going to be the ones you depend on. And everyone else, the feared, they're going to be the weight that is yeah. added to these elite soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bjorn, how is the feared equipped? Oh, man. So, so the feared, remember, these are just, these are just random individuals. Like you said, they're farmers, they're peasants, they're blacksmiths. They, they are working individuals who have little to no training. You know, they might have gotten together every once in a while for some, some emergency or another. Yeah, they're yeah, think like maybe different. like an American Revolution, like, you know, some militia training maybe, you know, like Bro, but yeah. maybe once a quarter or maybe once a year kind of thing. Like not extensive training at all. Yeah, they, they have they have a basic idea of how this battle is going to take place. They have limited experience in actually performing these these maneuvers and these battles. And their equipment is going to be a hodgepodge. Oof. Now, when we're talking about the Norwegians and the English during this time period, Remember, the the Scandinavians had had a huge influence in English culture, and yeah. so we're going to see a mixture of weapons and armor that are very similar. You're going to see round shields, but you're also going to see kite shields. You're going to see scale armor. You're going to see chain mail. You're going to see some individuals who have leather armor, which was, in fact, a pretty decent defense. Uh, remember, you're, you're, you're just trying to protect yourself from a, a slashing blow right. from a sword or an axe. And so you have one extra layer of some protection that's going to potentially help you. And remember, if you if you ob obtain a gash from a weapon that is one inch deep instead of two inches deep due to the fact that you had this leather armor, that went from a potentially serious injury to a much less serious injury. So you're going to see individuals who are wearing cotton jerkins just a puffy uh, Michelin man type shirt just to protect from if I get slashed, at least this cotton jerkin is going to take the blow first. So these individuals like are to wearing- with our like North Face puffer jackets. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> it, whatever you can find to provide yourself yeah. with extra protection, whatever you can find in the, in the form of a weapon, maybe you're going to have your own axe that you obtained, or maybe you're a farmer, maybe you're a woodcutter, you bring that with you. Maybe you have a, a sword, which is a very expensive yeah. kind of professional weapon that may have been handed down through right. generations, but spears weren't uncommon, a regular woodcutting axe. Maybe you have a hunting bow that you brought with you. These individuals are not going to be well. There's no professional, like, I'm going to buy an outfit, my feared. It's expected that right. you're here to protect your land, protect your king, and that's why you have yeah. assembled on this day. And then the other part of this army is the Thanes, uh, wealthy landowners that would have provided their own armor and weapons, um, and they would have had something similar to the House Carls. Uh, so they're more professionally equipped, but they're not more professionally trained. So they're kind of like in the middle of the Feared and the House Carls. And then the English also had cavalry, we said about 2,000, and they're going to be armed with swords and maybe lances. Um, lances are kind of starting to become a thing at this time, but so it's, it's hard to tell if they actually had them here or not. Uh, we'll probably lean more towards them and just having swords here. Uh, instead of lances. And remember, uh, these cavalry guys, they're going to be harassing the flanks. They're going to be cavalry on cavalry. Uh, and they're also going to be used as kind of that, the scare tactic. <laughs> now, remember, if you hold fast, it's kind of like you form in square and you hold fast. A cavalry charge, no matter how heavy they are, is going to be a lot less effective 
than if you were to break and run. That's where the cavalry plays a huge part is mopping up mm-hmm. after after the fact. And we're going to see this kind of play out during the battle here. Yep. And then the English army was arrayed in two different groups. So they were led by, each group was led by one of King Godwinson's brothers on the west side of the river. And then let's talk about the Norwegians now. So Harold Hardrada's army start with about six to 8,000 foot soldiers and an additional 3,000 coming in later. So the they have 3,000 back guarding their fleet that is sailed up the river. Uh, so this battle will start with six to 8,000. And this is a big, this is a big fleet, correct? It's like 300. Yeah, it's pretty big. 300 Scandinavian vessels. You have enough boats to bring like 11,000 people to battle. And their their gear, their their equipment, provisions. And and so it makes sense that you're going to leave a a trail party that's going to sit there and protect some really vital assets that you have. Right. Oh, yeah. Your Viking longships, like those, that's like the thing for the Vikings. So one thing to note here is this army full of veterans uh, from campaigns that ranged from the Baltics and the Byzantine Empire. Uh, so the Norwegian army was made up of a mix of professional soldiers and mercenaries, including Yom's Vikings. Uh, they're a legendary band of warriors in uh, Anglo-Saxon exiles. A difference from the Viking or the Norwegians and the English is that Norwegians, less people, more experienced. English army, more people, less experienced. Uh, the Norwegians would have been equipped similarly to the House Carls of the English army. So chainmail or scale armor, helmets, large round shields. A variety of different axes, single-handed, double-handed, throwing axes, and they would have long, curved swords and spears. But now, part of the surprise that Godwinson and the English army is going to perform on the on the Vikings would have prevented Harold Hardrada and the Norwegians from actually taking the full-on benefit of the equipment that they had brought yeah. with. They left some of their equipment with them. A lot of their heavy armor was left on their boats. Yeah. So they're rushing to assemble as soon as they see their enemies approaching and they say, oh no, here we go. There's no time to don your armor. It right. took a long time. This stuff is heavy. Sometimes your chainmail armor, if it's a full suit, long sleeve down to your knees, you're looking at 50 pounds, 60 pounds. You belt it on. You got to put on your helmet. You got to yeah. put on your, your leg protection. It's going to take time. So when your enemy shows up and you're just sitting around in a campfire or eating something or doing whatever you're doing, you do not have the time to don this armor. So that's going to be a major disadvantage to these Viking warriors who, although are elite soldiers, very well trained, very well disciplined, they are going to have a disadvantage in the fact that you have the shock factor, Mm -hmm. plus you're not prepared for this battle. Yep. So Harold's army is arrayed on the east side of the River Derwent in three groups. Harold led the main group. The second force was led by Tostig Godwinson, which is Harold Godwinson's brother. And then the third force uh, was left to guard the ships. Now- Harold Godwinson's brother, Tostig, he's fighting against his brother in an attempt to gain back what he had lost, correct? Yeah, so he was the former Earl of Northumbria, and he had been exiled because he was a not good Earl. And so he had uh, been exiled to the continent, and then he got hooked up with Harold Hardrada, and he basically was like, hey, Harold, uh, you should be the king, and if you become the king, you should make me the Earl of Northumbria. Well, hey, you can make deals with anyone, I guess. And You can make deals with anyone, yep. So that's how the armies are set up. English on the west side, Norwegians on the east side, Norwegians, few people, more experienced, but now they're not as equipped like we talked about. English army, large numbers, less experienced, but they are fully equipped and they are ready for the fight. All right. There isn't much to talk about here, Bjorn, in terms of the strategy. Both armies use the shield wall uh, and both armies are going to try to attempt to set the edge to win the flank. And then both armies are also going to try and penetrate the shield wall and break through, right? So that's kind of like the shield wall. So let's talk about what the shield wall is. Can you give us a little background on that? Yeah, absolutely. So 
a shield wall in, in the form of, of fighting in which it takes place. And you're going to see individuals, they've got their shields. Now, nine out of 10 soldiers were, you know, right-handed. They had their weapon in their right. They'd have their shield in their left. And most of these individuals, especially the Scandinavian armies and a lot of the Anglo-Saxons, are using still the round shield. Now, kite shields are coming out, but kite shields will not be very uh, far out and popular until a couple of maybe a hundred years yeah. after this battle so we're seeing we're still seeing the end of the round shield which it's a heavy weapon it's plank wood bound together and you're going to be using it now they had a, a a shield boss which is what's in the center and it had one hand grip and you would hold it in the center with your left hand and you would brace it on your shoulder and you would interlock your round shield with your with the individuals to your right and your left, and you would essentially create a wall preventing any form of blows to come through as you're defending yourself, defending your person to your right, person to your left. It's okay. like a phalanx, only it's the Middle Ages type of phalanx yeah. using a, a, a round shield. Now, the problem is, is when you're interlocking your shields, that doesn't provide very much opportunity for your right hand, which is carrying no, you your You have a weapon. lot of flexibility. Not a lot of flexibility. Yeah. And the idea behind this is that both armies have their shields interlocked together, and they would charge into each other. And there were a couple cute little tactics that you could utilize. One one tactic was what was called the boar's head, and you would have essentially a triangle formation yeah. where you'd have one super big dude in the front, and he's like the tip of the spear, and his job is to run as fast as he can with everyone else behind him, and his entire job is to push and smash a hole in your enemy's shield wall because that is literally the only way if you cannot outflank your enemy's shield wall the only thing you can do is break, break your enemy's shield wall so the boar's head was where that one huge dude you know the 200 pounder when everyone else yeah. is really small and he doesn't even have like he's going to use both his hands to hold this shield and he's going to put all of his weight behind it and he's going to try and just batter ram it. it just battering ram this wall and so if that fails to occur, you're going to see both armies smashing into each other wall on wall, and there is very little room to move. So you're going to have weapons like the Siax, which is a smaller uh, sword. Like a, like maybe like a, a foot dagger. and a half. Like a, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like what Ligolas uses in The Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like yeah. and, and you're going to be using that. They make that a lot of those on Forge and Fire. So if you want to see that, go check out a Forge and Fire episode. Yeah, yeah. there you go. There you go. So... You're going you're gonna to be bracing with your left, pushing as hard as you can with your shield on your left to try and maintain this line or bust into your opponent's line. Well, at the same time, you're utilizing your right hand to try and either puncture over, you're pushing over your shield to try and gouge into your opponent, or people are going underneath the shield. Because remember, it's a round shield, right. so there's a top and there's a bottom. So this is why utilizing helmets, having a helmet was one of the most important things. Yeah. If you are the elite soldier in the front ranks, you want to be as heavily armored as you can. Because during these, they've done a lot of archaeological excavations of battles like this, and they found that one of the number one forms of injury was blows to the head. And because that's one of the only vulnerable spots that you it's have. It's sticking up. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're pushing you're pushing your weapons over the top of your shield. You're mm -hmm. trying to go underneath your shield. Those are the only two real vulnerable locations. Well, at the same time, you have these goofy little the feared dudes who don't maybe have shields. Yeah. They're sitting there behind you with their with their spears, putting them through your legs, kind of going la 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 la, <laughs> trying to trying to swipe at your yeah. opponent. 
who is in front of you yeah. and try and cut them down through by you know hamstringing them in that fact. And these armies are going to be smashed into each other until either one they're exhausted and have to take measured steps backwards off of each other to take a break, which happens regularly. It's kind of like in wrestling; you can mm-hmm. only you can only go for a couple minutes before you're absolutely exhausted and you have to back off or you break through your enemy's lines. Mm-hmm. Those are the only two ways that a shield wall is going to resolve itself. And many times, and especially in this battle where they say it takes a really long time, these armies are going to be smashing into each other, taking measured steps backwards, and then smashing into each other again. Yeah. So, Bjorn, it's tough to say here who has the advantage in this fight. You know, so the English start the fight with around twice the strength of the Norse. Uh, but the Norse are a lot more experienced. Dan Carlin, in his most recent episode, was talking about, you know, when you're talking about like a strategy game, uh, you know, like D&D or something, you know, we'd maybe give the Vikings like a plus four combat multiplier for their aggressiveness in battle. So, like, I don't know how much that multiplier will uh, will affect the battle here, right? Like, yeah. does it even out the odds? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept because there's a lot that is playing on itself, especially with the brutal and and just basically it's brute force in a shield wall so you have the experience of the vikings versus the mass of the english Mm -hmm. so those those are those are two different two different pieces in itself but you also have uh, the lack of potential armor due to the surprise of the vikings whereas the english most of their fear don't have that kind of armor anyways and you have the training of both the house carls of the english and the elite troops of the vikings so this is what what we're going to see is a very, in my opinion, even playing field until luck plays yeah. a part. And I think luck and randomness always play a part in in war, right? So like that, you can't you can't discount that here. So let's talk about what happens in this fight. So before the battle began, a group of English horsemen ride out towards a Viking host. One of the horsemen told Tostig that King Godwinson would give him his earldom back if he turned on Hardrada. Tostig declined, but asked what Hardrada would get if he accepted. The rider replied, he, King Godwinson, would give him seven feet of English ground, or as much more as he may be taller than other men. So <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna bury Hardrada here in in England, but we'll give him enough we'll give him enough ground so he can lay out flat. Well, and I think that's really interesting uh when you look at this, he says, or as much more as he may be taller than other men. Uh, you know, the Scandinavians based off of their their diet, you know, they did a study on the, the difference between the Scandinavians diet versus the English diet, because in the in the records, the English would write these huge these records of these Scandinavians who were just mountains of mm-hmm. men. They were huge. And it turns out that as a whole, the Scandinavian diet included a lot more meat and a lot more protein, whereas the mm. English diet had a lot more oats and more grains involved in it. So kind of an interesting little sidebar there yeah. but you know this individual himself is identifying that king godwinson the scandinavians probably larger than most people so we'll give him seven feet of english ground i imagine king hardrada was a intimidating man to look at absolutely yeah. you know being a leader a thousand years ago was a lot easier than being a leader today because yeah. all you really had to do to be a leader is you had to be big so they could see you on the battlefield and you had to be loud mm-hmm. so they could hear you on the battlefield because we're going to see many Battles in history are going to evolve into chaos. They're going to devolve into chaos based off of random acts in which leaders are sustained injuries or the fear of them being killed on the battle or actually being killed in the battle has a detrimental effect on the soldiers that they're leading. I mean, we're going to see that happen here at Stanford Bridge and at the Battle of Hastings. So we'll talk about that here in a second. So uh, 
King Hardrada then asked Tostig this, Who was that man that spoke so well? And Tostig replied, That was King Harald Godwinson. According to the saga of Harald Hardrada, the Viking king is said to have recited these verses, In battle storm we seek no lee, with skulking head and bending knee. Behind the hollow shield, with eye and hand we fend the head. Courage and skill stand in the stead, of panzer, helm, and shield, in Hield's bloody field. So could you just imagine like, your king sitting there like reciting poetry before the fight? <laughs> I think that'd be really cool if that was true. It definitely I, happened. I don't know already. how. I don't know how poetic Harold Hardrada truly was in history. Maybe he was. Maybe he was super poetic. I think it's an awesome, potentially created story. Yeah. But if it's not created, that's that's pretty cool. And especially how of Panzer Helm and Shield in Hill's bloody field. That's a good line. line. That's a good line. I'm jazzed. I'm ready to go. So the English begin their advance for the Norwegian line. And this uh, this movie was delayed because of the bridge, right? They have to get across this wet gap. And that's like one of the hardest things to do in any military engagement is get across the wet gap. So according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the delay was made even worse because of a gigantic Norwegian axeman. The Chronicle says that he held up the English army long enough for the Norse to form a defensive shield wall. He slayed apparently 40 Englishmen uh, before he was then killed uh, by an English spearman floating under the bridge at a half barrel, thrusting his spear up through the planks of the bridge, killing the uh, the axemen from below. I think that's a great, I think that's an awesome story. And here's the thing, if it was the Norwegian saga that sang, one of our dudes held the line for a really long time and slayed many, many men, I think that would potentially be a little bit more prone to exaggeration because you always exaggerate that your dudes yeah. did a great job. But in this case, the Anglo-Saxons are the ones who are chronicling this saying, yeah, we were held up by this one dude and yeah. he was he was a bear. I think that's really cool. And I think maybe and it gives he more credence that it might be kind of true. Yeah, maybe he didn't kill 40 Englishmen, but I would venture a guess that because it was the enemy, the adversary who was writing this about this guy, I would venture a guess that, yeah, there was a big man on that bridge defending that bridge probably with you know with an axe a yeah. big broad axe because here's the thing you know they could have come at him doing a shield wall but it's a small bridge so you're maybe three or four abreast and they could have tried to take this dude out but when he's when he's hefting this great axe one of the great tactics that they would use is they would use the the broad head of the axe to actually rip the shield from yeah. the individual so it was actually a quite useful tool in using against a shield wall so it's completely plausible that this man, uh, I truly believe there was a dude on that bridge. He was big, he was mean, and he was fierce, and he did a great job until somebody took him out. Yeah, an English spearman from below. I love that part too. Yeah. Uh, so the English eventually crossed the river, formed their own shield wall and attack. The battle is said to have lasted for many hours. Uh, as the Norse line begins to break, King Harold uh, Hardrada steps in to rally his wall. And this, again, comes from Harold's saga. So says Arnor, toasting scald, where battle storm was ringing, where arrow cloud was singing, Harold stood there of armor bearer. His deadly sword still swinging, the foemen feel its bite. His Norsemen rushed to fight, danger to share with Harold there, where steel on steel was ringing. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. You can just see him, you know, coming to rally his troops and, you know, of armor bearer, you know, in this case, he may have taken his helmet off <laughs> just so his soldiers could have seen him. Head, you know, yeah. they're, they're losing their their morale, they're ready to flee, panic is on the air, and he takes his helmet off, and he's he's yelling at the top of his lungs, here I am, let's do this, and he rushes into that to, to plug the gap, and you can just see as his soldiers would be rallying around that. Yeah. But what happens? Unfortunately, King Harold Hardrada hit by an arrow in the windpipe, 
That was his death wound. He fell, and all who advanced with him, except those who retired with the banner. So Harold Hardrada dies from an English arrow to the throat. Here, and that's where that's where that random factor really plays right. in a lot in in historical battles, because if he would have been untouched by this arrow, if he would have been untouched by the English uh, soldiers, maybe he rallies. It's quite plausible that he could have rallied his troops. Yeah. He could have held the line. He could have plugged that gap, and things could have weighed differently. Because what would have happened if Godwinson would have been hit right. by an arrow instead of right. instead of Hardrada? And yeah, could you like so? We'll talk about this in a second here, but you know they still have those three thousand uh, people in his army sitting at the boats, and they're about ready to get into this fight. So could you imagine another three thousand Viking soldiers with Hardrada rallying the, the troops and pushing against the English? Like that could have really changed the outcome of this battle. Absolutely. When they're almost even and they're playing, they're fighting for a really long time. And then all of a sudden here come 3000 more men that absolutely could have turned the tide of the yeah. battle. But this random act in which, when, which the King, the leader of the Norwegians is struck in the throat and killed that in my opinion is one of the most significant actions of this battle. You know, you're watching an NFL game and the star quarterback goes down like that totally ruins the morale of the team, right? Like it's, it is hard for that second stringer to get in there and try to rally the team. Especially yeah, if it's or, a close tight, uh, close game. And just keep the momentum that's going, keeping it, it alive. It's almost impossible. Absolutely. Yeah. So Tostig Godwinson would eventually take up the Norwegian banner, but he would also fall in battle. At this time, the Norse Reserve would enter the fight for one last chance to turn the English. The counterattack named Ore Storm was led by Eystein Ore, Hardrada's would-be son-in-law. He too would be killed, ending the Norwegians' last chance to win the day. Thus, the Viking Age would end at Stamford's Bridge. And that's what's so crazy is this... The series of the Norwegians and the Scandinavians in particular in England starts in Lindisfarne in 793 and continues until 1066. Yep. We've got 300 years almost in which the Scandinavians are going to play a huge part in the future and in the pol- politics and the policies of the English. That ends the Battle of Stamford's Bridge. Let's transition now uh, to Harold Godwinson's next fight. So... This dude is not able to relish his victory at all. He's got to get moving because he knows William is on the way. Harold left a large portion of his army in the north, I think because he didn't really trust uh, the Earls of Mercia or Northumbria. And so he kind of just did the same thing. I'm going to drop the fert here, take my house carls, and we're going to move down to the south and I'll pick up a new army. Harold leaves a large portion of his army and moves south to handle the Norman invasion. There was an 18-day gap between the battles of Sanford Bridge and Hastings. Harold marches the 200 miles and spends about a week in London before fighting William. What I think is just so crazy is Harold Godwinson and the English are going to fight two battles in 18 days and almost win both of them. Right. With 400 miles of marching. Yeah. That's nuts. It's crazy. Just nuts. All right. So the vast majority of sources say the Battle of Hastings actually took place seven miles to the north in a town called Battle on Sinlac Hill. Uh, I think the town got the same battle because of the, uh, the top of the hill uh, is a place called Battle Abbey. Uh, which is which was established after the fight. Uh, so there was no abbey there at the time, but if you go onto Google Maps, you can see where this battle was fought. Uh, so they put Battle Abbey on the top of the place where Harold Godwinson's body was. So if you search for Senlac Hill, Battle UK, in Google Maps, you'll see the abbey at a gently sloping area just to the south. That open area right now is tagged as a battlefield. But according to a website called the English Heritage, that open area was very marshy and crossed with streams, a terrible place for an attack to happen. 
So William more than likely attacked from the southeast instead of from the south. And if you look on the map, there's a lot of like, there's some streets and some towns out there to the southeast. So he most likely attacked up that part of the hill into top of Senlac Hill. All right, so yep. let's talk about the composition and disposition of both these forces. Modern historians say the English army was about seven to 8,000 foot in a mix of House Carls and Fjord. By the time of the battle, all the English riders would have been afoot. So any cavalry that Harold Godwinson would have brought down, they most likely would have been a part of the shield wall. And they most likely had a small number of archers and javelins, but not a huge number. The Normans, on the other hand, had somewhere in the range of three to 6,000 footmen, one to 3,000 archers, and about another one to 3,000 cavalry. So more mixed. We've already talked about the gear of the English. Let's talk quickly about the gear of the Normans. The soldiers for them would have been equipped with knee-length chainmail hauberks, a conical metal helmet with a nose guard, and then the cavalry and infantry both would have carried shields and long double-edged straight swords. And these individuals are going to be utilizing the kite shield model at a rate that far exceeds the, the round shield, which is going to be the norm for the English. But there are still going to be some of these Normans who mm -hmm. are going to be utilizing round shields. It's, okay. Remember, we're transitioning into a different time in which the, the kite shield becomes more popular. But Brendan, most of these individuals, most of these footmen, most of these archers, the cavalry, with the Normans, they yeah, are trained they are. soldiers, are they not? Whereas the English, the English are going to be, you know, many of the house carls who have just fought a battle, uh, individuals who are trained, the but fear. then they've still got this yep. newly assembled right. feared. And it's not the same feared as at Stanford Bridge. So it's a, it's a brand new feared. It's going to be kind of the same kind of deal here, um, but it's going to be more, the numbers are going to be more aligned together. So they're going to be closer aligned in numbers. So the Normans, I would say, have the advantage just in terms of the experience and the amount of people they have. All right, let's talk to this position here. So the English army was on defense. Let's discuss how they were right here. So on the top of Senlac Hill, the English army formed a shield wall and it curved around the top of the hill facing south and southeast. The edges of the wall probably tied into some sort of obstacle to prevent the Normans from enveloping them. So it was, you know, trees and marshes and that sort of thing. So they would have like tried to really get those shield walls right up to the edge of those trees so that the, uh, you know, the, the cavalry couldn't circle around them and envelop them. And that's exactly what you want. Essentially, what they've done here right. is they've created their own fortress. They are a shield wall. They've created their own wall, their own fortress. You can't get yeah. around me. And it's the exact same thing this when is we a good see place you know, to be in. in modern conflicts now and in a modern doctrine. When you build an obstacle like a, a minefield or a um, concertina wire or a tank ditch, you want to tie that into some sort of obstacle, right? So the enemy just can't go right around it, right? You want to like make sure that's tied into the terrain and it all is integrated together. So the English are doing that here with their shield wall. The Normans were arrayed in three groups or what they called battles. So, and they would have been based on the geography that they came from. So the Bretons would have had the left wing, the French would have been on the right wing, and then William and his Normans would be in the center. And then how he had them arrayed was the Norman archers were in front, with the infantry behind them, and then cavalry would be in the rear as a reserve. Now, what's going to be interesting about the difference between this battle and the one that had okay. just occurred is the archers. Now, Scandinavian army doctrine was a lot less reliant on archers. They didn't have actual formations of archers. But what we're going to see with these both these armies, the English army and the Norman army, is that they do have significant portions of their military force devoted towards being yep. you know, the archers, the missile note units here, though, they're not on the, the battlefield. Same. English archers are using a short bow, whereas the Norman archers are using long bows. So the Normans have a lot greater range and power than the English archers have. So is that going to play a huge effect into the no, Norman's ability no to puncture through this shield wall, even so. though the weapon is better? 
two different two different weapons, you know, a big bow versus a small bow, but at the same time, it just talks right. about the effectiveness of a shield wall being able to protect yourself from incoming arrows, right. regardless and of especially like of how the it's being English army on a hill, and the Norman army is at the bottom of a hill and they're shooting up. So that is a really hard shot to make. Plus, you're shooting into a shield wall, so most of those missiles are going to go over or they're going to hit the shield wall and be not effective. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about what this looks like here. So fighting begins for the Battle of Hastings at 9 a.m. on Saturday, the 14th of October, 1066. William's initial strategy seems to be more of a frontal assault, right? Like he knows he can't go around the edges, so he's got to attack them front on. Train was not conducive to anything else. He has to do a frontal assault, right? Because he doesn't have his own shield That's wall. That's risky and business he's got a lot right there. Split. You're going yep, up a hill directly up a hill. Norman archers begin the fight by shooting uphill to English to little effect. William then sends the Norman infantry in, also little effect. One last chance, Norman or the Norman cavalry comes in. Uh, they're not able to break the wall. So the the Normans and the Bretons and the Frenchmen actually start having a general retreat away from the shield wall. What's interesting here, though, is that retreat breaks the shield wall for the first time on the left, on the Norman left. The English on the English right, begin pursuing the retreating Normans. William rides through the retreating lines, rallying a counterattack, overwhelming the English. So wait, we've got this disciplined organization of elite English troops who are holding the shield wall mm -hmm. in the face of missiles, in the face of archers. The cavalry comes in. Not at all. They're not phased by the, the shock and awe of the heavy horse coming at them. They don't break. They hold fast. Nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, the Normans begin to retreat. And that's where the elite, disciplined housecarls of the English army decide that they're going to well, that's try how and you take advantage of this. Then, right? and they break you get ranks. the enemy to retreat and you pursue. And then that's where you destroy the army. So had William not been able to rally his forces, this could have been a disaster for the Normans. But instead... But maybe not a complete disaster, but like a localized disaster on the left side of the Norman line. But that still would have had a huge effect. So this is this this initial retreat, this initial breaking of the shield wall. This isn't good for the no, English. No, and it's about midday when this happens. A lull in the battle happens. Bjorn, like you talked about, you know, uh, at the Battle of Stafford's Bridge, like there's some, there, like it's not just a constant fighting. It it kind of seems like towards midday there's a lull in the fight, and it almost kind of turns into a halftime, like you know, a football halftime for Coach William here. Uh, so he's able to get to the locker room, get his soldiers fed. And he changes the strategy up a little bit. He learned something from the English there. He learned if he can attack with cavalry, you know, do a retreat, he can break the shield wall. So he doesn't have to penetrate the shield wall. He just needs to get the English to leave the shield wall voluntarily. So he's so, going to take that strategy into the second half here. Man, so he's utilizing a weakness that he observed at the mm -hmm. beginning of this battle, and he's going to use it to his advantage in order to really rain down destruction upon the English. Exactly. So we call this tactic now the feigned flight. So he's going to feign or feint a, a flight away from the English. So he's going to send the Norman cavalry into the shield wall and then pretend like it's a big retreat to draw the English into a pursuit, breaking the shield wall. And then they would rally and counterattack and, you know, piece by piece start eliminating pieces of this English shield wall. And they did this a couple times, like probably two or three times throughout the rest of the afternoon. Um, and this tactic definitely thinned out the English lines, but they never really got a real penetration. But, so they never broke through the shield. But during this entire time, the English aren't really noticing what's going on. They're they're attempting, these elite soldiers are trying to take advantage of a situation. They're not getting wise to it. 
they're going forward, they're breaking their own lines, and they're taking casualties yeah. in areas and on soldiers who they can't afford to lose. Like you could make an argument that the feared are probably not as valuable, but they're not in the front ranks. These individuals who are going right. to be pursuing the Normans who are feigning a retreat. Probably the house carls. They're the house carls. They're the elite yeah. soldiers. And when you lose one of those, it's like you've lost five or 10 feared right. soldiers. So this is going to be detrimental, yeah. regardless of the fact that the Normans are not actually able to break through the Norman lines. They are definitely damaging the effective and the the might of this right. English army. And I think it just it, it gets in the English head, right? Like we are we're being slowly attrited here. We're still holding, but it's starting to get probably in their minds like this is probably not going the way that we need to go here. And something very bad for the English happens late in the battle. But this also would have attested to the Normans' ability to understand what's going on. Because let's right. be real here, most of these these Norman soldiers would have had to have known what was going on. Hey, we're going to we're going to go there. We're going yeah. to wrap around a little bit, and we're going to fall back on purpose. Because yeah. if if you're going to spend the whole day with these your regular foot soldiers going forward, and then feeling as though they must retreat or falling back, that's going to have a morale detriment on it in itself. Right. So late in the battle, Harold Godwinson, King of England, is killed. It's not known exactly how he died, but it probably happened in the thick of fighting. So it wasn't like William and Harold, like one-on-one -on -one combat. No, he was probably like, it was, you know, in the shield wall or around there where it's really thick fighting on the Bayou Tapestry. So this is like one of the primary sources for us to know what happened at Hastings. It, I mean, it's like a piece of carpet on a wall, uh, the Bayou Tapestry. So there are two figures shown dead, one with an arrow in the eye and the other being run over by a Norman horseman with sword. Above the figures, it says, Hic Harold Rex Interfexus Est. Here, King Harold has been killed. We don't know which figure he is or if he may be both. Interesting that that you've got two different ideas of how he died. Bottom line is, this is another one of those random events. Just like Harold Hardrada was yep. killed by a random blow. Here we go. The King of England is killed with a random blow. Now, it seems to me there's only one guy left. And that's yep. William, the Duke right. of Normandy. Exactly. After Harold died, the English army began to collapse. The Normans pursued the fleeing Englishmen. The Battle of Hastings was over. William, Duke of Normandy, had won the day. So here's a question for you. Yeah. In these olden time battles, if you are the important king, the important general, the chieftain, the person who's in charge, you are, you're running a very fine balance and a line here where in one hand, if you are too far away from the battle, maybe it gets out of hand and you end up losing. But at the same time, if you're too close to the battle, you are now endangered. Yeah. And if you are killed in battle, then your empire, your country, your nation, your army is destroyed. Yeah. But it's like, it seems like most of these leaders tend to be more in the fight instead of being way back. So they're up there motivating their soldiers, you know, working the fight and yeah, they're they're up there, and it's a it's a dangerous spot to be. I mean, we just saw we in you know we've been talking for forty five minutes. Two kings have been killed because they were in the middle of fighting, and well, William he, probably was somewhere close to like he probably had a couple close calls here. I think he had a couple horses shot off from him. So it's interesting because all three of these individuals were known as having some experience in battle. They were known as being courageous in battle. Probably one of the big reasons why they were followed so well by the soldiers right. who they had under their command was because those soldiers knew that wherever I'm asked to go, William, Harold, yeah. the other Harold, they're going to be there too. It's a good uh, leadership lesson there, I think. You know, so the Normans win here, and 
I think the Normans were a huge beneficiary of the double invasion of England, right? In a month's time, Harold's forced to march 400 miles, build two armies, and fight two major battles. But the, yeah. what's interesting is the fighting that at, at Senlac Hill, the Battle of Hastings, it lasted all day. And the English weren't really exhausted. Like, they didn't, like, you know, at 3 p.m. fall down and collapse because they were exhausted. They fought the entire day. And it was that random event at the end that right. that cost them the battle is really interesting. You know, we talked about it before that the English almost won two of these battles. Imagine if those housecarls were not exhausted through their marching, because one would one would assume that those individuals had made the 400-mile march. You know, the fear right. didn't do it. But these elite soldiers, these individuals who are well-trained, well-equipped, ready for battle, experienced, that's got to be tiring for them. They yeah. had to have been at, in a state in which they were not in their prime. Right. And maybe they, like, so they lasted physically through the fight, but maybe Bjorn, that kind of gets to some of the discipline issues that we talked about, right? So yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to, I think William was just a better military leader and he had the more disciplined army that day. Um, and maybe the English would have been more disciplined if the house Carls hadn't been marching for 400 miles, right? That, that gets into your brain and it makes you make bad decisions. So maybe that is the case, but maybe Harold Galveston just didn't have as disciplined of a leadership strategy. Well, and you can think of the frustration that these English would have had in their inability to break their enemy's lines. Essentially, what it came down to is whoever mentally was resilient enough to continue yeah. the game was the one who was going to win this one. Yeah. Were the English going to hold their lines? You know, in other battles in history, you're going to see armies that completely flabbergasted and frustrated their opponents to the point where they're their opponents made poor decisions yep. because they were the ones who were holding fast. You couldn't <laughs> get to them. You couldn't reach them. Had the English had that same level of discipline and just stood on that hill all day long and yep. had never broken ranks, had never sustained those casualties, had never done something like that, it is completely conceivable that Harold Godwinson would have remained the King of England and we yep. would have had an entirely different story for the next thousand years mm -hmm. of history. Yeah, I think I think it just comes down to that. I think it's as simple as that here. So let's talk about what happens after those fights. William would not be crowned King of England just because he wanted Hastings. Another person was actually proclaimed King. Edgar the Aetheling uh, was proclaimed King by the Wittengen. And that that is that, that council of bishops and aristocrats that you talked about earlier, Bjorn. So William would have to continue this to London. He fought a few more engagements before he would accept the English surrender at Berkhamstead, Herefordshire. So William the Conqueror would be named King of England and crowned on the 25th of December, 1066. So he's now the king. He's accomplished his goal. But William would still have to deal with uprisings and rebellions through 1070 and would secure Norman rule of England moving forward from there. Uh, William would go on to build many castles and keeps to include the Tower of London and the White Tower. By the time William died, most of the aristocracy had been swapped from Anglo-Saxon English to Normans. So we see a complete shift in the leadership of the country moving into uh, a Norman background. And so from there, England would be changed forever by William the Conqueror. There were lasting impacts on the clergy, the aristocracy, the culture of England, the government of England, and the language of England. English today is different than what Harold Godwith spoke in 66. Yeah, it, this battle right here is a prime example of the significance of one battle, or in this case, I guess the significance of two battles, one okay. a little less influential and then one incredibly significant. Just imagine how the English empire, the empire of Great Britain, which was 
you know, at one time the most powerful empire in the world. You remember the sun never sets on the British Empire. Okay. That was an empire. That was a government that was established in 1066. Okay. That is an empire that has grown from William the Conqueror into what it was to now what it is today. And it's incredibly interesting to think about how the world would have been different. You know, would would Great Britain have become the massive empire that it became in the 1700s Would had Godwinson won instead of William the Conqueror? Right. I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Would the English have focused on their naval aspect and have their boats whereas you know that wasn't that yeah. wasn't a real focus of the anglo-saxons they did not have large navies they They're were not, not well trained in that aspect of of fighting yeah, so, so they were talking about like no colonization no colonization we're talking about not defeating the spanish armada maybe the spaniard the spanish empire is going to be the one that it becomes the world dominating right. empire of the world there are so many hypotheticals to this and it all begins on this day yeah. of battle. Another, another interesting thing uh, in my mind here is before 1066, England is very much like looking to the north and central part of Europe, right? Anglo-Saxons came from the Germanic region. There's been a lot of Scandinavian influence with the Vikings over the last 300 years. So England really looks like to the center and north of Europe. But now after 1066, with the introduction of the Normans into English society, England starts to look more to the western side of Europe and starts to have more influence with France, and France has more influence with England. So now we're we talking, we move way forward to World War One. Does the uh, King of England side with the French, or does he more align with the Axis? Oh man, right? Yeah, like so, like that... there's like there's some like, maybe World War One doesn't even happen. I don't know, but yeah. there's like there's some huge implications because of what happened here uh, yeah. in October of 1066. It's crazy. It's one of these situations where, you know, there's always individuals who argue whether one battle was significant to history or really truly decisive. I think that all individuals can agree that the Battle of Hastings that took place in 1066 is one of the most significant battles in history to the world that we know today. 100% agree. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Remember to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss our next series. MMG out.